Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. This afternoon we're going to be reading from the book of Acts, the 20th chapter, 25 through 32. And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will arise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I now... Um, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and may we prepare ourselves to ingest the word which is able to save our souls. What we're going to do tonight in lieu of a regular sermon is something that we've been talking about for some time. We haven't tried it yet. First time to try it, and we're going to see how it goes. So you're a bunch of guinea pigs tonight, and I hope that you really enjoy what, what's, what we're about to do. Um, for a number of years, for many years at Polishing the Pulpit, through the week, there will be a class that we call Elders Case Studies. And through the last several years, wherever I go, I I collect difficult problems that elderships have faced. And I I don't really want any identifying marks so that, you know, people would know where it came from. I don't want the solution. I just want the hard problems. These are not the kinds of problems typically that would happen in a congregation every week. They're, They're problems that would happen only rarely, and when you hear some of these, you'll be very thankful to hear that. And then what we do at PTP is to divide a group of men, whoever comes, and we will have, I don't know, 40 or 50 or more, and we'll divide into small groups of 8 or 10, and each one is declared an eldership. Have some teenagers there, uh, and then some, some whiteheads will be there, and we will I will give them one of these or two of these and give them an hour to work out these problems. What we're doing tonight is to bring some of those case studies, and Brother Holmes and I will take one at a time, we'll we'll tag team on this, and discuss them. And 
And some of these are really hard. Some of these are going to make you tremble just a little bit. What I would remind you is that none of these are manufactured. I mean, we didn't make any up. All of these are things which actually have occurred in churches of Christ in recent times. These are actual problems that elderships have faced. And then we'll have a discussion of each one as we go. First one. Our congregation of about 225 people has four elders. Outwardly, things seem to be running well, even though the monthly men's business meetings that the elders conducted were usually filled with bickering, and very little was ever accomplished. One Sunday morning during the invitation, three of the four elders came forward. They read a written statement that said, Because of the inability of the eldership to take care of the business of the Lord's church, we now resign as elders of this congregation. Now remember... They had four elders, three of them resigned at one time. The remaining elder, who didn't resign, came forward, went to the podium, and asked one of the men of the congregation if there was any reason why he would not or could not serve as an elder. The man said he believed he met the qualifications and would be willing to serve. The elder said, Then you're an elder of this congregation, and it's the duty of the congregation to follow the eldership. One of the deacons stood and asked if the church could have a closing prayer and then if all the men could immediately meet in a men's business meeting. The elder again answered, it was the congregation's responsibility to follow the eldership and that there was no need for a business meeting and that if there were any questions, they could be answered then and there. What should the congregation do now? Now bear in mind, just to plow the ground one more time, Four elders, three resign on a Sunday. You have one left over, and he takes the pulpit after the other three resign and says, points out Brother Jones, and he says, or Brother Smith, and says, uh, are you qualified? He said, I believe I am. Then you're an elder, and now we have a new eldership, and everybody must yield to that eldership. First thing I want you to realize is that in response to this, remember that Scripture always speaks of the eldership in plurality. So Acts chapter chapter 14 and verse 23, they ordained elders in every church, plural. In Titus 1 and verse 5, Titus was to ordain elders. He was commissioned by Paul to ordain elders in every city. Each city had its own congregation, the ones he was referring to there. And every congregation was to have her own elders, plurality. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the elders which are among you I exhort who am also an elder. The churches always had a plurality of elders. And when you think about the alternative to that, you can understand the wisdom in Scripture for having a plurality. It is the smartest way to do that. The second thing is that, the, that this man who came to the pulpit, uh, once the other three had resigned, is no longer an elder because it has to be a plurality. When they resigned, he was alone and, and so the eldership was thus dissolved. So when he took the pulpit and said, let me just ordain this gentleman to be one of our elders, he did so unilaterally as, as one, any, any member of the church might have done. And, and of course, that can't be right. So what the men did here to say, let's have an, a meeting of all the men and work on this matter was the right thing to do. The men of the church should meet. They should examine the scriptures and facts of the case 
And then they should make a public announcement, an explanation to the, to the church about this. I, I would encourage them to give some deference. What you want to do is hold the church together. And I, I would encourage to give some deference to this lone elder by saying something like, we don't doubt that, that Brother Smith felt he was doing the right thing at the time, but careful consideration of the scripture disallows this action. And now we'll go about the process of carefully appointing new elders. It would be good to sit down with him and have a conversation. If, if it's the case that he's bent on division and that's how it's going to be, Romans 16, 17 says to mark them that cause division. And so there's a provision in Scripture made for that if, he, if he's a diatrophies. One more thing. I would encourage the preacher to, to spend a few weeks preaching about the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 so that the church is refreshed in this, they know what the Bible says, and in the selection of their new elders, they will work very hard to get this right. Brother Holmes. First of all, I want you to know that the, uh, the case studies that, that I'm dealing with tonight are, are the answers or the opinions that we give uh, is from all the eldership. It's just not from me, but it's a collective uh, agreement between ourselves uh, so that uh, it is an eldership that needs to, to answer these things and not just an individual. Case study number one. This is from another country to the U.S. and United States elders. This man writes, I put a law in my home that any of my daughters with pregnancy before marriage would be driven from my home. I did that because it is, it is sin and God hates it and because I wanted them to get good university education first. Yesterday, I sent my daughter to a medical facility for a checkup. In the process, it is discovered she has one-month pregnancy. She called her mother, my wife, and told her about it. She even told her mother, my wife, not to tell me considering the law I put in the family. She told my wife that she wants to abort the young pregnancy. Because my wife and I don't keep secrets from each other, she told me after coming from attending to her call, I am a member of the church in which I serve as a preacher. What am I to do? It appears that this man has put too much emphasis on a secular education for his children uh, instead of a spiritual education. Although he recognized sex uh, before marriage as a sin, I'm not sure how much he taught this to his daughter. She became pregnant and wanted to abort. The rule that he put in place in his household didn't prevent this sin of, of fornication, but it also there appears to be no room for a, pen, a repentance there for his daughter. She's to be kicked out of the house. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one. So there's an obligation to try to restore this girl. And the other things we have to assume, he doesn't tell us that she is a Christian, but we assume that she's a Christian. So she needs to be restored. Uh, to the church. If the girl refuses to repent, 
then the pattern that's given in the New Testament for withdrawal from fellowship must be must be followed. So we we assume that she is a Christian. What should he do? First of all, he needs to change the rule, doesn't he? That rule is not conducive to for, to keeping his family together. If he kicks them out of the house, then the chances of of uh, Keeping that daughter are pretty slim. Number two, he needs to emphasize Christian principles at home over, you know, and being more concerned than being more concerned about a secular education. A good education is, is essential for us, but a Christian principles being taught at home uh, are more important than a good education. Third, he needs to teach that fornication is a sin. 1 Corinthians, 9, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Paul in writing the Corinthian brethren there gives a long list of sins, and among those is fornication. And he says these people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But if you recall also in 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter, he said some of you, this was some of you. So it's a sin that can be repented of, and this girl needs to, to repent of that and, and to know that... Uh, to continue to live in this, she cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Also, he needs to teach that abortion is a sin. First John 3.15 says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And he goes on to say, And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. To abort a fetus is murder. And so it is a sin to do so, and that needs to be taught to his family. There's always consequences for sin, isn't it? There's a baby on the way. The father's reputation as a preacher will be questioned. This man and his family will have to work hard to restore their reputation, but it can be done, and it can serve as an example to other families of how to overcome sin. He does not need to kick his daughter out of the house. Four years ago, we employed a middle-aged preacher. For a while, he was preaching good sermons, and things went relatively well. However, for the last few months, his sermons have contained little Bible. His sermons are mostly made up of interesting stories. No one is learning what to do to be saved from sin. He's well-loved in the church, and only a few members have said anything to the eldership about this concern. But what should the elders do? I think it's a good question. Now, bear in mind that, that in the church, the responsibility of making sure that what is taught in our classes and pulpit are, are sound and scriptural, the buck stops with the elders. It stops with the elders. If, if there's a lack of scriptural teaching in our classes or in our pulpit, it's a problem first in the eldership, and they've got to make sure this is corrected. So... 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. He said, feed the church of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. And, and he goes ahead and describes that some more, but it's the responsibility of the elders to do that. And this preacher's not doing that. The question is, how do you handle it? And how do you handle it without risking unnecessary damage to the church? 
first realize that a harsh, unnecessary approach will create possibly a storm in that church that can be avoided, I would encourage the elders to, two, two elders, maybe not all the elders, but just perhaps two, to go and sit down with him. <clears throat> and the first thing you do is to say, how are y'all getting along? Are you happy in your work? How's your wife doing? How are your kids? Are your kids doing okay? And have a conversation just about, about life because it may turn something over that you didn't know. It may be that he's got some serious problems going on that just haven't surfaced yet and that he needs, he needs compassion and help and let's see if we can get, get with him about these things. And perhaps you'll learn those things and we can fix this and help him in the process. <clears throat> if that isn't what this, I mean, if that conversation doesn't reveal anything that's helpful, then you need to go ahead and be specific and say, what, what we really need to talk about is that the sermons need to reflect more, more Bible, more study, more teaching from the Word of God. People need to know how to get away from sin and how to live holy lives, and we need some more work on the sermons. Now, at this point, let me say that, and of course I'm talking about my own kind here, so I want to be careful, but boy, specificity is so important. When I was a boy preacher, about 23 years old, uh, one of my elders came to me and said, I want you to change how you preach. And, well, you know, I was, I was all ears. What do you mean? Well, I don't know exactly. I, I want you to preach more like Tom Holland. Now, for those of you who don't know, Brother Holland has passed away, but he was a terrific mentor of mine. He was a great, great preacher and just one of the best, one of the best. So intelligent and sound and strong. I want you to preach more like Tom Holland. Well, you know, I would love that. What, what exactly do you have in mind? What do you mean? Well, I don't know. I, that's all. I just want you to preach like Tom Holland. Well, do you know how much, I mean, I, do you know how much good that did me? The answer is none. It did me no good. I, I didn't know how to process that. And, and that was that. It, all, it was all Brother Holland's fault. But so I want you to be, I think, it's, I think it's great specificity to say, brother, we love you. We love you and we love your work. And here's what we mean. And it might be to lay out uh, a course of, of different kinds of sermons. For example, the first Sunday of the month ought to be a doctrinal sermon. Second, a devotional, more devotional sermon. Third, maybe a corrective sermon. Fourth, maybe an encouraging sermon. And if you, if you vacillate between those, perhaps it'll be more well-rounded and and we want to encourage you to preach more expository sermons. That is, verse to verse from the scriptures. And that would help him a lot, don't you think? That's very practical. That's specific. Uh, take a half a dozen verses and just walk down through them for 35 or 40 minutes. And, and then if, you, if two or three months pass and you don't see significant improvement, I would encourage that you sit down with him and, and ask, ask him or tell him that, if this doesn't get better, you're going to need to replace him. And the reason is that after you've handled it this way, if it, what, what you have to do is take care of the church. And, and his own personal needs at this point, while important, would take a back seat to the, the care of the whole church. I, I know this, this procedure isn't guaranteed to avoid all avoidance of problems, but I think it's a procedure that you could defend later in the way that you handled it.
I need help with a specific issue that has come up in our congregation. It is not a widespread issue, but the two members that have been vocal about it tell us that it is causing division in the church. This issue deals with nationalism in the church. We have a song leader that at certain times of the year, Memorial Day, 4th of July, Veterans Day, will lead God Bless America or America the Beautiful at the close of our service. This couple has written us twice voicing their concern and stating it is wrong for us to let that happen. They also do not like public prayers led for the leaders of our country in regards to making laws that are in line with Christian values. They state that the prayers are politically motivated and point to one party over the other. In parentheses, he said, there has never been a prayer led that asks for any party or person to be elected by name. Many of our men pray for the president, even though I know personally they did not vote for him or support him. This couple also says it may offend a visitor that is not a Christian or that has been treated wrong by this country in the past. Example, Jews, black, Asians, etc. How should we handle this? There are basically three questions that need to be addressed here in, in this, this uh, question that's been asked. First one uh, is division. Two, songs that can be led into worship. And three, prayers for the leaders of our country. First of all, division. The elders need to determine if indeed there is division in the congregation and if there's a problem or if this is just a problem from two members. From what is written in this question here, it appears that it's just a problem with two members here. And so the elders uh, need to, to meet with these two people uh, and, and talk about this. Uh, two, songs that can be led in worship. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Also, Colossians 3.16, which we're very familiar with. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. This scripture not only tells us how we are to, to worship God in, in songs uh, in our services, but what also what can be sung in our worship services. If you go to Vine's Expository Dictionary and look at the meanings of these three, uh, three things here that uh, Paul talks about, a psalm is a sacred song. A hymn denotes a song of praise addressed to God. And a spiritual song is a song that pertains to things that are revealed by the Spirit or by the Word of God. If a song does not fall into one of these three requirements found in the scriptures, then it cannot be sung in worship service. The elders should review all songs to see that they fall into one of these three categories. And by the way, the elders here at West Hansel review all the songs that are sang in our worship service here. Three, praying for the leaders of our country. First Timothy 2, 1 through 3 Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. The scriptures leave no doubt that we are to pray for our leaders. They're plain about what is to be done there. I'd ask this question. Uh, The two people who brought this up said someone might be offended by it. What if someone is offended by us singing in worship? Would we keep quit singing? What if someone was offended by us praying or preaching? Would we stop those things? We would not. There are certain things or certain requirements for us to be successful in our worship to God, and singing is one of those things, and praying is one of those things. And to pray for what God has told us to pray for is scriptural there. The elders need to meet with these two people and discuss these matters. They need to read the scriptures that we've read tonight. And when you think about it, in in their question, they said twice this couple had sent letters or requests to the elders. The elders have failed here in that they should have addressed this with this couple uh, before it come to the third time. And so they need to meet with these people, help them to understand the scriptures. If, and, you know, if it is not met with and if they do not help them to understand the scriptures, then there can be division in the uh, in the church here because those two people will continue to do what they're doing if they're not taught better. A man who is a member of the church moved into our community, began attending, and eventually wanted to place his membership with us. The problem came when he explained to the elders that he is a woman in a man's body due to some drugs that his mother took while she carried him. He has fathered two children, but now generally dresses as a woman and prefers to use the women's restrooms. He's soon to have surgery to correct his gender problem, i.e. to make him a woman, should the elders accept him for membership? What should they tell him? Should the potential of legal problems and publicity affect their decision? There's only one reasonable approach to this highly publicized matter of fluid genders. The gender of a man or a woman is determined and defined at birth. Despite the dramatic efforts that a man or woman may employ to appear to be a member of the opposite sex, they are what they are, and transgenderism and homosexuality are sin. What if, what if the brother in question says he has no inclination to have a sexual relationship with any other person, male or female? I would like to point out that pretending to be another gender in itself is still wrong. It's always been God's will that men look like men and women look like women. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 25, I don't want you men to wear women's clothing and I don't want vice versa. In 1 Corinthians 11, a great part of that chapter is given over to the teaching that there must be distinctions in the appearances of men and women. I would say that there's another consideration, too, about the peace of the church. We're not at liberty to, as Christians, to 
to let our own personal, selfish thoughts or desires disrupt the peace of the church. We ought to prize the peace of the church, and all of us ought to work to protect it. Which restroom will he use? Will he sometimes be alone with children in those private places? You can, I mean, you can see the difficulties that could arise. Even if he argues that he knows that fornication of any kind is sinful, he doesn't intend to commit sexual sin in connection with his change. He still should avoid this temptation to look like a woman out of interest for the peace in the Lord's church. Consider this in the context of all Christians and the sins which tempt us, James 1, 14 and 15. All of us have temptations, but surely... Surely it is the duty of every Christian to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, one. But it's also to protect the church from negative effects of our sin. What other temptation or sins can you think of that people could flaunt in the church and be pleasing to the Lord? I suggest that there are no sins that should be ignored and given a pass because of escalating cultural pressures. We all have to deal with temptation, but we should make every effort to protect the church, both in its essence and its reputation, from sin. They get better as we go. A dozen years ago, a brother in our congregation was charged and convicted of molesting a minor boy who he had been bringing to worship with him. At that time, he sent word to the church asking for forgiveness. He was sentenced to prison and was released a couple of weeks ago. He has come to our eldership wanting to place membership back with us again. Ours is a small congregation, and we have in recent times been growing in young families with children. What should we say to him? What is the best way to proceed? First of all, you know, a person who is convicted of a convicted child molester, by law, must register as a convicted sex offender. He must register in the county that he lives in within seven days of moving there. He also must register every year within seven days of his birthday. There's also limitations on where this person can live. I tell you this to say that there's no hiding from this sin in his past. This brother has repented and he's asked the church for forgiveness. He'll never be able to, to hide from his sin and will carry the consequences of that sin for the rest of his life. Any congregation where this brother would place membership will be faced with the same problem, won't they? When you start dealing with members, young children, uh, they get pretty serious about that. His membership should be accepted with conditions that he agrees to. First of all, the elders should announce to the whole congregation about his past and his repentance. Number two, he must never be alone with any child. Three, 
He should have an assigned person who will go with him anywhere in the church building or on church grounds. And four, he cannot attend any youth activities. A person who is convicted of child molestation must realize there's always going to be doubts in people's minds about him. This is the price that he must pay as the consequences of his sins. If this person will not accept these conditions, then he should not be accepted as a member of that congregation. Also, there's another avenue that might uh, you might think about here. There might be a congregation close by that has, and there are congregations like this who do not have young children or young people. And it might be... Uh, that you could help him to place membership at a place like that. We know from the scriptures uh, of the man at Corinth who had his, his uh, father's wife, and the church there was told to withdraw from him, and they did withdraw from him. And then in writing in Second Corinthians, Paul said, Restore this brother now. Restore the fellowship to him so that you will not destroy him. We must try to restore the fellowship with this man uh, and help him to go to heaven. Well, there you are. The, uh, the time we've spent tonight hopefully has done a few things, and, and one would be to, to help us all to appreciate our good elders. Aren't we thankful for them? The kinds of problems that we've talked about tonight, again, are not things that they face every day. Aren't you glad for that? But these are all real things that have really happened in churches of Christ. And, and so it makes sense to, to discuss them. And um, hopefully the result will be that we've thought through things before we face various problems. And that will be helpful. The application of scripture in our lives is really what this is about, to take the principles and, and apply them to people and to problems and to issues and to questions. And in God's divine will, he created elders for the church. And when you hear these kinds of problems, aren't you thankful for those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? I mean, I understand it. I understand why those qualifications are there. You couldn't have just anybody to make these kinds of judgments. You need people who are mature and well-versed in Scripture. Anyway, I hope that you've enjoyed this time and that it's been beneficial to all of us. Is there someone here tonight who wants to obey the gospel? Maybe, you, maybe you've made up your mind. I've been studying about this, and I really want to give my life to Christ. I want to be a Christian. Now, you, you, we'd just be so happy. You don't have to obey the gospel during a worship assembly. You know that. You, you can obey the gospel anytime, day or night. But maybe there's somebody here who would like to obey the gospel now to repent of his sins and confess the name of Jesus and be baptized. You've heard the word and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You want to follow him. You can do that, and we'll be happy to help you. If you need the prayers of Christians tonight, we're so happy to do that with you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.